Deloitte Private, offering audit, consulting, tax, and advisory professional services to allow private companies to address today's challenges and shape tomorrow's opportunities. Connect with us at Deloitte.com slash US slash private. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Recently, we talked about what's happening in the solar industry. So today, we're going to pivot to another popular clean power solution. That's wind. We're going to have a specific focus today on what's happening in the United States, and that's because the Biden administration has set out an ambitious target of 30 gigawatts of installed offshore wind capacity by 2030. While onshore wind has historically done well in the U.S., embracing offshore is relatively new. But with a quarter of all U.S. offshore wind deals canceled in 2023, this ambitious goal is looking increasingly out of reach. So what lies behind these cancellations? And is this an issue only facing the offshore sector, or is the U.S. onshore wind sector in an equally precarious position? To find out more, today, I'm joined by two members of BNEF's wind team, both based in New York, Chelsea Jean-Michel and Atin Jane, and they discuss some of their findings from BNEF's recently published BNEF Onshore and Offshore Wind Outlooks for 2023. They share the impacts of the two I's, interest rates and inflation, on U.S. offshore wind projects. And when a developer cancels one of these offshore wind contracts, what actually happens? In many other parts of the world, you can't immediately rebid on the same project. But in the U.S., well, we're going to find this isn't necessarily the case, and they're going to give us a little more color under what circumstances. We also return once again to a pod favorite, ERCOT, the Texas grid, where onshore wind developments have been rolled out with far less friction and grid connection wait times are significantly shorter than in other parts of the states. So what should other parts of the country be learning, both good and bad, from the Lone Star State? We'll talk about that, too. To access our onshore and offshore wind outlooks and other related insights and reports, BNEF subscribers will be able to find them on BNF.com, on BNF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal, or on BNF's mobile app. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to share it with others, make sure to give us a review. But right now, let's jump straight into our conversation with Chelsea and Atten. Chelsea, thank you very much for joining the show today. Hi, Dana. Thanks for having me. And Atin, nice to have you here as well. Thank you, Dana. So we're going to talk about onshore and offshore wind today. And I like to actually think of this particular industry as one of the darlings of renewable energy. There's been so much positive conversation historically around wind and its capacity factors. Why 
do you think wind has historically had such a strong reputation within renewables? If you look at the story of the last two decades for renewables in the U.S., wind power actually has been the dominant force of clean energy transition in the country. And that's because wind has been able to enjoy a lot of subsidies in the U.S. in the form of production tax credits. Those subsidies started way back in 1992 and, and continues till today and are going to continue at least for another 10 years. And there are some estimates that maybe it can go all the way up to 2050, these subsidies. So wind power delivers cheap form of electricity in the country. Developers enjoy these subsidy benefits, which means they uh, enjoy a handsome return. There is some concern with the macroeconomic situation today. But overall, wind has been a profitable business for the developers. We have enjoyed a local supply chain for onshore wind in the country. That means wind generates jobs. So everyone actually loves wind. And that's onshore wind. But what is the history in U.S.'s relationship with offshore wind been? Yeah, thanks, Dana. And I, I guess if I could also add on a little bit more as well on the wind side of things for being a darling child, I think that if you compare the generation profile of a wind farm to a solar farm, right, wind's not going to cut out at night. When you're looking at the capacity factor of a wind farm, so capacity factor being essentially, you know, how efficiently that wind farm works over the course of a year, basically how much does it generate versus how much is possible for it to generate. Wind farm capacity factors tend to be closer to around 30% versus for solar when you're looking at closer to 20%. And so you're basically able to generate a lot more renewable electricity with the same installed capacity. Also, what wind has is it has scale. And so for onshore wind, you might see projects in, you know, the 100 megawatts side of things, whereas for solar, they're usually a lot smaller. If you go offshore, then you start to look at gigawatt scale. And for context, in the U.S., one gigawatt project offshore can power around 350,000 homes. So that's a lot of renewable electricity that you're generating at a large scale at higher efficiencies. Now, if we take a look at the history of offshore wind in the U.S., it has been a series of stop, go, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go, basically a lot of false starts. For context today, there are only seven turbines operating in the waters. So there's 30 megawatts off the coast of Rhode Island, and there's 12 megawatts off the coast of Virginia. That being said, there are also two projects currently under construction right now. That's over 900 megawatts, almost a gigawatt that's going to be commissioning all next year into 2024. And so we started to see kind of the first really good signs of the U.S. offshore wind industry to start kicking off when um, the Biden administration began to take over. So we saw lots of federal approvals come through. The first large-scale offshore wind farm in the U.S. was approved by the Biden administration. And we've also seen, I mentioned, the first few projects start to get constructed. So that's kind of the overall history of the U.S. about lots of false starts. But now we're starting to see some construction. And Atten hinted a little bit more about like the macroeconomic environment that we're in right now, which has meant that we've started to see a lot more struggles in the industry. Well, let's go into that. Let's go into the macroeconomic environment. I think everyone is very used to thinking about inflation and higher interest rates at the moment, but this is hitting the wind industry, in particular in the U.S., quite hard. What are some of the obstacles that currently granted you know, winners of auctions are being faced with and really questioning whether or not to move forward with some of the projects that they have been granted the rights to do and to build? 
Yeah, I guess there are the two I's which are the big problems right now for the project developers, the inflation and the interest rates. The inflation has come down from the peaks that we saw last year, but the interest rates are still very high. At the time of the recording of this podcast, I just had a quick check and the secured overnight financing rate, the SOFA, which is like a benchmark to price loans in this country, that was at about 5.3% compared to near zero levels we saw during the pandemic. So developers are really feeling the pinch of these interest rates and they all have their backs to the wall because there's very little they can really do around the inflation and the interest rate situation and we actually did some analysis earlier this year around what has been the impact of inflation and interest rates on the US offshore wind project LCOEs and what we found was there's a near 50% increase in the costs of the US offshore wind electricity just because of these challenges we have seen. If, if I have to run you through the math around it, I would go about by asking you to first remember there are a lot of sevens involved here. Back in 2021, the levelized cost of electricity for a subsidized offshore wind farm, basically a project that had access to the federal tax credits, that number was about $77 per megawatt hour. Now, what has happened is inflation resulted in an increase in the CAPEX and OPEX for these projects. And the levelized cost of electricity went up by about $17 per megawatt hour. And then the interest rates led to another hike of $27 per megawatt hour to that number. But between the interest rate hikes and the inflation, we also saw the federal government pass the Inflation Reduction Act last year. And the IRA has provisions for bonus tax credits. Now, if we have a conservative estimate on what bonuses these projects can qualify, we can actually see the impact in a minor decline. The LCOE goes down by about $7 per megawatt hour. And so net and net, what you come to is $114 per megawatt hour number in 2023 compared to the $77 you had. So $77 goes up by $17 because of the inflation, goes up by another $27 because of the interest rates, goes down by $7 because of the bonus tax credits, and net you reach at about $114 per megawatt hour. Now, to put this in context, and I want to keep this show about wind, I mean, that's that's what we're here to discuss. But if the LCOE for wind is worsening compared to other industries, does it remain competitive and does it remain lower? Is that 114 that you pointed out per megawatt hour? Is that cost competitive with natural gas in the U.S. or coal in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, it still is quite competitive. You have to also think about it from this perspective that wind really has zero variable costs. Some of the variable costs associated with operating a gas turbine is uh, are quite, are quite high. Sometimes the fuel cost could be as high as just the energy cost from an offshore wind project if, you've, if your fuel costs are very high. And there is volatility associated with fuel prices as well. So it's not really a like-for-like comparison to make with, say, a gas or a coal project. But I think that $114 per megawatt hour number put in the right context is, is still quite competitive. And I guess if I could also just add something, um, that $114 per megawatt hour that Atten's talking about, that's for offshore wind. So for onshore wind, this is lower. For solar, this is lower. 
And so, you know, I kind of want to make that distinction that offshore wind and onshore wind, they are still wind generation, but offshore is significantly more expensive and also just has a different generation profile. It has significantly higher capacity factors. So I mentioned 30% earlier on in the podcast. Offshore in the U.S. can reach as high as 45%, 48% in some cases. And so with that in mind, there is a distinction between the two. Also, I think it's important to clarify that what Atten's been saying about interest rates and inflation, this isn't just impacting wind. This has impacted renewables and other technologies, other industries across the board. And so, yes, while the price of wind is going up, we've also seen the price of solar go up. We've seen the price of so many different technologies go up in the last few months or the last year or so. And so, yes, it might not necessarily be as competitive now as it was in the past, but I guess the opposite of the idiom, uh, rising tide lifts all boats, but rising interest rates raises the cost of capital for everyone. And then the last piece on offshore wind that I think is important to mention is that it has the highest levelized cost of electricity across renewable technologies. So if you compare it to onshore wind and you compare it to onshore solar, offshore wind's a lot higher. And if you take a look at why it is that states are building offshore wind, it's not because it's the cheapest source of power, right? It's because you see sometimes really high price spikes in the winter due to high gas prices or gas shortages in the Northeast. And so offshore wind as a technology, because it generates a lot during the winter, it can kind of offset that price spike. So that provides additional benefits. These are also massive billion dollar infrastructure projects. So there's a lot of economic development opportunities associated with it. Also environmental benefits as well. I mentioned the scale that offshore wind has, gigawatt scale that you can build. And so there's all of these other pieces that aren't necessarily contextualized within an LCOE that adds the benefits to offshore wind and can make it more competitive in certain respects. Now, these increased costs have led some developers to think about whether or not to proceed with certain projects. And my question really comes down to, well, what happens then? What is the process of pulling out of a project? How prevalent is this across the different developers who have won auctions? And are they likely to then stay in the game for the future? Well, at the time of the recording of this podcast, we've just heard that the total projects that have been canceled so far this year is at about 5.5 gigawatt including the 2.3 gigawatt of projects that Austed recently canceled. The other developers that have canceled some capacity include Avangrid that, that have canceled. I mean, they have canceled around 2 gigawatt of projects and Shell Ocean Winds. Uh, they have canceled another 1.2 gigawatt. So I think uh, what essentially all these developers are now trying to look at is can they rebid in future auctions? And most states allow this leeway for the developers essentially so to contextualize, we've seen over 12 gigawatts of U.S. offshore wind projects seek to either cancel or renegotiate their offtake contracts. To put that into context, 12 gigawatts of offshore wind can power around 4.2 million homes, and that represents over half of all contracted U.S. offshore wind capacity. Now, what I mean when I say contracted capacity, so these are projects that have won contracts via a competitive solicitation in state auctions. So a state like New York, which has a target of nine gigawatts by 2035, will have these solicitations or these auctions to procure power and developers will bid in and say, oh, I can provide it at this price. I can provide it at 
this lower price and then usually some other elements like economic development, um, environmental benefits, etc. And then these contracts will be awarded. Now, what's been happening is a lot of these contracts have been awarded in 2019 and 2020, where developers were making assumptions on what interest rates would be like, what inflation would be like. And we've seen over the last year or so how this reality has shifted. And so when they bid at their contract prices in the U.S., this is unique because these contracts aren't indexed to inflation. So in the U.K., you might have a 15-year offtake contract, and then it'll go up by inflation each year. This is also the case for Poland, partially for Ireland. In the U.S., this is not the case. So you'll receive a flat price over the entire contract term, be that 20, 25 years, or you'll receive a flat escalator. So it might go up by like 1%, 2%, 3%, etc. And so what has happened is that developers baked in certain assumptions on what the macroeconomic environment would be like when they needed to reach financial close. So this is around now for a lot of these projects that bid in 2019 and 2020. But the reality has shifted so much that it's put the economic viability of their projects at risk. And so that's what Atten was talking about a little bit earlier in terms of the rise in LCOE. Now developers are, you know, kind of doing the maths and saying, wait, this isn't checking out in this way. And so in terms of the penalties, Dana, that you, that you asked about, like what exactly happens when you want to cancel, there might be requests to renegotiate. So this happened in the case of Orsted and BP um, Equinor in New York, where they asked for offtake price increases of around 27 to 66 percent. The New York Public Service Commission said, no, we will not increase your prices. And so now the developers are at a place where they need to decide if they're going to cancel their contracts or if they're going to try and figure out other pieces to make the projects work. New York has also come out and said that they are willing to put forward a backfill auction. So in the case that these contracts are canceled, they'll put forward another solicitation, say sooner than usual, in order to try and backfill those projects and make up for some of that lost capacity. That's around 4.3 gigawatts in New York. In the case of Massachusetts, Avangrid and Shell Ocean Winds, the developers that Atten had mentioned, they have canceled their offtake contracts entirely. And so they are paying $49 million and $60 million in fees for canceling those offtake contracts. And in the case of Orsted's Ocean Wind 1 and 2 projects in New Jersey, this is recent news, so we still have yet to see what's going to happen there. But these projects have actually halted development altogether. So in the case of Massachusetts, these projects have said that they want to rebid at higher prices. But in the case of New Jersey, there's no indication of, of what the future of these projects hold. So there are some penalties. There's some renegotiation. There's a couple different things that developers can take. But we've seen a couple of different approaches at this point. At Deloitte Private, our passion for innovation creates powerful opportunities as we advise our private clients on ways to stay ahead of change, to leverage technology to drive progress, and to transform disruption into lasting value. Deloitte Private brings the service depth and breadth of Deloitte, tailored specifically to the unique demands of privately held, family-owned, and venture-backed companies. Connect with us at Deloitte.com US private. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. 
And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, wind farm development can take some time to get off the ground, and presumably if that moved a little bit faster, there would be less time for economic conditions to change so much in the amount of time it takes to get these things online. So let's talk a little bit about time, how long it takes to bring things online. There are a number of factors that weigh into this, including grid constraints, which we've actually talked about on this show in the past, and permitting delays. What is the state of play right now in the majority of the U.S.? And let's leave ERCOT to the side, because I actually want to come back to that and talk about how this is an outlier, both in terms of how that electricity system is structured and what they have done to become the leading state in the United States when it comes to wind. Dana, you highlighted like a really, really key issue. So for offshore wind, these timelines can take eight to 10 years. In the U.S., can take as long as 14 years, sometimes even longer as we're waiting to hear about the fate of some of these projects. And so with that in mind, New York recently awarded four gigawatts of offshore wind capacity to very early stage projects. And so these were projects that won a seabed lease in a federal auction just last year, and they're hoping to commission by 2030. Now, I mentioned eight to 10 years and sometimes as long as 14 years. And so for us, we think they're going to commission into the 2030s, so later on than they're hoping for. And this is because of things like long permitting timelines, needing to figure out your transmission, offshore wind, again, like huge infrastructure projects. And the U.S. supply chain is extremely nascent on the offshore side of things. And because these projects just secured seabed leases last year and they won their offtake contracts this year, this means that they are locked into pricing for when they commission in the 2030s, which is like a high level of risk that we usually don't see in other markets. So for For example, in the UK, you're required to have your permits as well as access to a grid connection before you bid for offtake. And that's usually closer to when you'll reach financial close and have a better idea of how much your project's actually going to cost. I'll pivot to Atten to talk a little bit more about the onshore side. Yeah, the onshore projects come up uh, relatively quicker than offshore, but still take a lot of time in the US. I think the average time varies at around four to five years, but in some cases can go even high as up to a decade or even more. And the major challenge that most of the project developers in the U.S. face for onshore is permitting. Researchers at the Columbia Law School identified about 228 local and about nine state-level restrictions that have impacted projects in about 45 states of the country. So yeah, almost every state has the same kind of problems. And if I have to kind of like break down what kind of challenges these projects face, they're essentially like seven main types. And then if you have to bucket all the other challenges into other categories, there's probably an eighth one as well. 
the most common form of wind farm limitation that we see in the US is about a required distance limit or a sometimes called as a setback limit between the turbines and public or private property lines imposed by the local councils. And, and we have seen this kind of a challenge really emerge in the Midwest states, which is really has become some sort of a hotbed for opposition for both onshore wind farms as well as solar projects in the country. And if I have to talk about some of the states that are really increasing the pressure on the developers or like really pushing back on wind power. One state that comes to my mind is Indiana. Indiana has about 20 local counties where, where there is some sort of a restriction that wind projects face. There are other important states with good wind resource like Nebraska, Ohio, Texas as well to an extent where, where the developers are really facing these permitting challenges. So let's pivot to Texas, the island grid for the Lone Star State, ERCOT. They have been able to get some of the projects down to as little as two years. How and why have they been able to pull that off? Yeah, so Texas is just Texas, uh, as they say. (laughs) Uh, In the last five years, wind projects have come faster in Texas than many other U.S. power regions. And there's, there's like a multitude of reasons for that. First thing first, much of the land in Texas is actually privately owned, which means that it simplifies the negotiations that the developer goes through for land leases and right of the way compared to other regions where land ownership is a little bit more complex. ERCOT also operates as an independent grid, which can allow for a faster integration of new renewable energy resources just because they can control all these permitting studies, technical assessments around power injection into the grid and so on. And permitting can also be quick in the state because there are relatively simpler regulations. Texas also gets an advantage for easy access to equipment for the developers because it has a lot of existing wind factories inside the state. And also some of the neighbors like Oklahoma have have a robust wind supply chain and a logistics network. So essentially getting equipment and getting services that are needed to build a wind farm is just easily available there. So while we have seen Texas really grow very sharply in terms of adding new wind capacity, that could actually change because there are risks building in the system. So earlier this year, Texas lawmakers tried to pass a bill that if approved would have allowed large-scale wind and solar projects to first seek an approval from the state's public utility commission before even beginning construction. That bill would have also required wind turbines to be at least about 3,000 feet away from any property line. This could make it extremely challenging for the developers to find suitable project sites. There were other bill provisions which would have meant that the environmental impact review process also becomes a little bit more complicated for the developers. Now, this bill did not pass. So right now, the developers can have a sigh of a relief. But It can't be ruled out that similar provisions or similar bills could not be introduced in the state's legislature in future. So what I want to know is how well-received or poorly received wind and new build of wind is perceived in the United States. And I'm thinking immediately of this term nimbyism, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, the not in my backyard folks, and the fact that there were projects in the state of Massachusetts, which were often opposed by the Kennedys and off the coast of Cape Cod that really weren't going to get the backing that they needed in order to get set up there. Are we finding that, as you pointed out, 
provisions being added regarding how close they can be to someone's property line. Are we finding that there is a a reticence to see wind farms set up in sight of everyday citizens and importantly headed into an election year voters? Or is this something that the country is embracing as a domestic source of energy? And frankly, I think wind turbines are a bit beautiful. Well, I think it's it's a mixed bag of a situation right now because there's so many people, people like me who really love wind farms. I may be a little bit biased, but 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 there are many people like me who who really see the economic advantage that a wind project brings to the community in terms of additional payments to the landowners, local jobs, and just like a creation of a new supply chain which wasn't really there earlier. So there are clear economic advantages that wind farm brings. Are they leading to a surge in jobs in the U.S.? And does it have that as something that is making it popular? Uh, Yes, I guess one of the fastest growing jobs in the U.S. actually is that of a wind turbine technician. So it is really adding to jobs in in some of the local communities, particularly in the rural parts of the countries in Midwest, uh, which is which is a good thing for economy. So so just because of all these job growths, all the other benefits of the wind farm to a community, wind farms have actually become a topic which is bringing a lot of bipartisan support. Really? That's cool. I I think just like one thing to note is, um, Dana, you mentioned the Cape Cod example. We saw Cape Wind fall through as a project earlier on in the U.S. offshore wind story. I think one key thing to note is that the offshore wind farms now are sited further offshore. And so people can get a little bit more behind an offshore wind farm when it's more of a speck in the distance rather than being right up front, close and personal. So let's talk a little bit about our market outlooks for both of these industries. Now, the Biden administration has a target of adding 30 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030. Do we see that happening? And more simply put, what do our market outlooks tell us regarding what we think will be built in the near term and the medium term? To be blunt, no, we don't think that the target is going to be met. In fact, since we've been forecasting the U.S. market, we've never once said that 30 gigawatts is going to be reached. So this wasn't one of those situations where the target came out and we said, oh, my goodness, like they're going to meet it. There's a lot of bottlenecks in the U.S. that stifle this build. So we've talked a lot about permitting, mostly from the onshore side of things. But for offshore, this is also very rigorous. So it's not only the federal permitting process that you have to go through, but also you're dealing with local permits, you know, where exactly that cable is going to be when it falls onshore. Um, You're dealing with state permits. You're also dealing with your transmission service operators on a regional basis. And so there's all these different entities between the states and the local government and the federal government. And you have to get all your ducks in a row that usually working in all of these different pieces is not what a lot of more mature European markets have been doing as they build offshore wind. So this stifles a lot of U.S. offshore wind build. I also mentioned it's a nascent industry. And so you really do have to build up that supply chain. If you take a look at the projects that are currently under construction right now, Vineyard Wind and South Fork Wind, they're receiving a lot of their components from Europe. And so you have these foundations, these turbines making days-long trips over the Atlantic. And that introduces a level of risk for delays and you know, it can create a domino effect. So this is something that Orsted highlighted in a key reason for the cancellation of their Ocean Wind 1 and 2 projects is that supplier delays caused a knock-on effect. And when you're dealing with components being shipped from so far away, this means that you're taking on a higher level of risk in, in this newer market rather than compared to a newer market in in Europe. And so with all of that in mind, um, we recently updated our U.S. forecast. And it looks like by 2030, we think the U.S. is more likely to install roughly half of that 30 gigawatt target. 
Yeah, on onshore, picture is a little bit more rosier than offshore in terms of we're going to see an increase in the installations going from next year onwards. So we, we, we think between now and 2030, US could add about 112 gigawatt of new onshore wind projects, which is if, if you actually add both onshore and offshore projects combined would be nearly enough to really double or nearly double the total installed wind capacity in the country. So yeah, uh, onshore wind is actually going to be a major driver of growth of the total wind power sector in the country between now and 2030. Zooming out to the global picture, as we prepare for COP28, the first week of December, we'll be releasing a white paper, which focuses on the tripling renewables ambition, which is part of the COP28, part of the targets that they're setting forward. Can we talk about what percentage of global power generation currently comes from wind and, well, where it was in the not too distant past and where we think it might go? Yeah, so essentially um, in 2022, global wind power generation accounted for about 8% of global generation, but that is up from 4% six years prior. So I think that's a pretty interesting statistic. So following on to that discussion about tripling renewables, if not wind, with it faced with all of these obstacles that have cropped up recently and our need to decarbonize quickly in order to meet net zero targets, which enable us to limit planetary warming. What else is there? And is there anything that you believe can fill that void from a capacity standpoint that wind does? Yeah, there are very few technologies which are carbon-free and can deliver electricity at scale and at a relatively competitive price. And wind is one of them. Now, solar is also another technology which is good, but like you don't really get solar energy during the nighttime. So essentially that if you have to really meet round-the-clock electricity supply, you need a reliable electricity source which can provide electricity, not just during the daytime, but also night hours. And wind is that source. So I guess policymakers do really need to understand if they do not really support wind power, if they do not make building new wind farms easy, if they do not fasten up the permitting process, the transmission hurdles, how are you going to meet your zero carbon electricity demands in the future? So if you, you, I don't really see a lot of options beyond wind at this point in time. And I, if I could just add one last piece there, I mean, I think it's important to remember that wind, like even though you have higher capacity factors and thus you're able to generate more renewable electrons with you know the same capacity compared to other renewables, that being said, it's still variable. And so when we're talking about the energy transition, battery storage is going to become a lot more important. We've been seeing a lot more announcements around pairing offshore wind with electrolyzers and using that to add some flexibility to the grid and add some flexibility for developers as well. And so thinking about all of the different ways in which you can store that power and dispatch it in ways where it can be used a little bit more flexibly and where the demand is and you know upgrading the grid and all of that great fun stuff, I think is going to be key because wind, I think, is a really important technology in the transition, but it can't do it alone. Atten, Chelsea, thank you very much for joining today. Thank you, Dana. Dana. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. 
Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.